What's up, everyone? Welcome to the London Music Podcast. This is Andre Sora, and today I speak to Dan Willett, who's a professional audio engineer and bass player. He works out of the Mushroom Studios, and I've actually known him for quite some time. He's been the producer and audio engineer for Electric Tuxedo's first outings back in 2016. He's a fantastic guy. He has a lot of knowledge about his craft, about recording, mixing, and mastering. And he actually shares some of that knowledge on this episode. We talk about his projects, about working in the analog, world versus digital world and we also talk about what the pandemic has meant to bands in Birmingham and the surrounding areas over the past year but without further ado I give you Dan Willett What's up, everyone? Welcome to the London Music Podcast. And I'm quite excited because I have Dan Willett on the podcast. Dan, welcome. Hello, mate. How are you doing? Good, good, good. The excitement here comes from the fact that five years ago, my band uh, at the time, Electric Tuxedo, uh, recorded our EP with Dan at Univibe Studios in Birmingham. So I'm sure we'll get to that part of your uh, life in the episode. So I was quite excited to... um, to invite Dan here to talk a bit about his journey as a record producer, musician in general, and maybe also to see what has changed in the scene over the past five years or so. But anyway, without me saying too much about this, Dan, welcome to the podcast and let the listeners know a bit about who you are, what you do, and what you've been up to. Well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on the show. My name is Dan Willett. I'm a producer, sound engineer, and a bass player from Birmingham in the UK. I work at the Mushrooms Studios in Birmingham, formerly Univibe, or Univibe was part of the Mushrooms in our old location. We moved premises a few years ago, but still a lot of the same people, a lot of the same clients. I've been playing in a hardcore band called Creature for the past several years. That's pretty much what I do. Did you start thinking about music production from a musician's perspective? Were you a bass player first and then a record producer? Yeah, I was a bass player first. Music production wasn't really part of the game plan, I guess, to begin with. I mean, I've always been into music. I didn't really kind of discover what sort of music really made me tick I don't think until I was a teenager you know I always kind of had an interest in music but in a more general sense and then you know you get to high school and you start meeting a few more people and making a few more friends and they're like oh yeah check out this band check out that band you start kind of getting more of a feel for what your personal preferences and tastes are I had some friends at school who were looking to get a band off the ground I'd never played bass before at that time but I was known as somebody who did music stuff I've kind of started off as a uh, more of a keyboard player actually when I was a young kid but these lads they were like yeah we're starting a metal band you play music right i bet you could play bass so i was like uh, okay yeah um <laughs> sure i'll give it a go never done it before but why not so i just went along and had a jam with those guys and uh, the rest's kind of history from there really i got the bug for it a little bit further down the track we used to rehearse at like a converted barn unit at a farm. This guy used to rent off the farmer there. And this guy who was renting the unit, he was about to move away, move to a different area. And so he kind of posed the question to us one day, oh, do you know anybody who wants a studio or might fancy taking this place on? And by that point, I was 
kind of 18, 19, and I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my life, if I'm being completely honest. It was kind of slowly dawning on me that maybe being a rock star wasn't going to be uh, the most stable career path, I guess. So I was like, yeah, all right, go on, I'll give it a go. Kind of took this little barn unit on and uh, I rented it out to a few friends' bands and had them come in and pay for rehearsals like in the space just to kind of cover the the rent for the month and in the meantime when the when the room was free i'd use it to do my first recordings and kind of getting into production i went to a local college just on a night course like once a week uh, learning the basics of how to put a microphone in front of a guitar amp and get a signal through a desk like really kind of fundamental stuff like important stuff but really kind of bare bones basic i guess but yeah you you have to start somewhere with that so that was what i did and yeah, used this uh, this barn space to get any bands in that I could rope in at the time to uh, come and track a demo with me and get a bit of recording and mixing practice. I did that for probably a year or two and then kind of got a bit of a demo showreel together to send out to different studios just to see, you know, if there was any uh, potential for work somewhere a bit more established with a bit nicer gear, I guess. And uh a bigger client base than what I had kind of on my doorstep. What were you using at the time? What gear did you use to record your first band? Um, I was using a uh, like a, a horrible Behringer DDX something or other desk, like a, a digital desk. It was kind of more of a live thing. I think it had all like the presets and the, uh, the scenes and things on it that you could load up and store into it. I was basically using that with the god-awful preamps that it had straight out of um, an ADAT, the light pipe connection into the back of the computer I had at the time. I got a uh, a pretty decent interface, actually, like an RME interface, which had the ADAT ins. And that's what I was using into a really old version of Cubase. I think it was version three at the time. So we're going back quite a few years without giving too much away about my age, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and was it mainly hard rock bands, metal bands from the get go? I remember doing a couple of punk bands and one or two metal bands, but it was kind of bits of all sorts, really. There was uh, a couple of bands that were kind of a bit more on the sort of lighter end of things, lighter rock stuff. I mean, there wasn't tons, to be honest. You know, back in those early days, it was kind of a few friends and um, a couple of other people that used to use the rehearsal space before I kind of moved in and took it on. Those were where I really got my start in respect of you know, the recording gigs, just dropping it out in conversation when I was kind of opening the place up for them and, or locking up at the end of the night and saying, oh, by the way, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm doing demos for people. You know, I can do you a good rate just to get some experience, that kind of thing. I had a few of those guys coming in until Joel, who was running Univibe, where you guys recorded with me at the time, he uh, he was running that place. And he I think he was mainly interested, I guess, in the fact that I'd been doing it even on a basic level but still doing it professionally professionally in respect of charging people money to record them <laughs> and mix them that was about the extent of my professionalism i think at those at that time so when when did you start working at univibe i remember exactly actually it was april 2008 and the only reason i remember that so exactly is it was around about my dad's birthday at the time uh, so i was like yeah happy birthday dad i'm no longer a leech <laughs> I have a job now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I guess I'm uh, I'm still a leech at times, but you know this is uh, this is how things go with your parents. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's always going to be like that, and it's a good thing at the end of the day. But no, it's um, I, hopefully I've come on a pace since those days. I'm still with a lot of the same 
team from Univibe, like I say, it's uh, it's now become part of the Mushrooms, which it was kind of more of a rehearsal space again to begin with. Um, but they had links with some of the local colleges and things like that. They used to have people come in. They had a, a couple of like control room recording spaces for uh, the college students to come in and, and learn in and to get some hands-on time with the recording equipment and stuff. So they were kind of within the same building as we were in Univibe and the two businesses were kind of connected. So we were kind of sat in each other's pockets almost, I guess. And it's made sense that now that we've moved, the two businesses are kind of both under the one roof, so to speak, under the same banner, I should say. Effectively, yeah, Univibe has now become the Mushrooms, but I'm still working in the same studio in essence, if not physically. Yeah, so it's exactly the same gear, but just moved in a different space? Uh, a lot of the same gear, yeah. Some things have changed. The circumstances around our move actually were to do with the HS2 railway. They enforced a compulsory purchase order on the building that we were in. So that was what forced us to mm. move. You know, a few things kind of had to change to facilitate rebuilding. But I think in retrospect, I think it's been a good thing for the studio. I think it's been a good move. I have natural daylight in the control room now which is great. Wow, that's that's rare. That is a yeah, and that is a game changer like more than you would believe because I in my younger years, god, I I lost track of the amount of times that, you know, I've uh, I've walked in first thing in the morning and then come out and it's dark at the end of the night and just completely lost track of all time that I've been sat in the control room just kind of squirreled away working on whatever mix I was on at the time. And yeah, I can attest uh, your professionalism on that front now that you mention it because one thing that stood out uh, when it came to just interacting with you was that you literally didn't take any breaks, I think. <laughs> You 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 took like five minutes a day. That was it, and you ate a cracker, and that was it. And then <laughs> plowed plowed through the rest of the of the session, regardless of whether or not it was mixing or recording a kick drum or whatever. So uh, yeah, professionalism is is an understatement. I've uh, I think I've got a bit better in that regard as I've got older, mainly <laughs> because I've had to just for for health reasons and for my own sanity. I guess I'm a little bit less uh, less abusive to my own body in that sense. Uh, I try to take a bit more regular breaks, but that's a difficult lesson to learn, I think, when, you, when you're so easily engrossed in something like uh, recording or mixing. It's easy to uh, fall down the path of diving so deep into something that you can no longer see the wood for the trees. Mm. And I started to feel that at times, I think, where, you know, I'd end up chasing my tail on something within a mix. And I could have probably done the same thing in less than half the time had I just kind of taken a step back and walked away from it for like even just 10 minutes and then had more of a break and then come back to it to mix time. When it comes to mixing, do you have a hybrid approach or do you focus mostly on the box nowadays? I'm still mostly in the box. I'm mixing a lot more from my home studio these days, in fairness. So in respect of being able to recall mixes, uh, being in the box is certainly an advantage. I think the technology has uh, come ahead leaps and bounds with regards to uh, plugins and emulations when you do want the sound of that's more reminiscent of a piece of analog gear. I think there's plenty of great digital emulations now of those kind of pieces. I wouldn't like to say that they are like for like identical and I don't want to uh, I don't want to knock analog gear at all because I think analog gear is great, you know, gear is nice, but in regards to Putting a mix together, I don't particularly care how accurate a plugin is in respect of the original hardware that it's modeling. 
as long as it sounds good in its own right for the job I'm trying to do. Makes sense. And what's your thought then in the same vein on app modeling? I've grown to appreciate more again as technology has moved on. I think kind of 15 years ago, plugins and digital app modeling and your, your line six pods and things like that, they I think they left a lot to be desired. It wasn't that it was impossible to get decent sounding results out of them. It was more the fact that you had to spend a lot of time to get there, it seemed like. Whereas now I think there are a lot more options and a lot better options available. Certainly things like your Kempers and the um, the um, the new one from Neural DSP, the, um, the Quad Cortex, that one. Yeah, that looks really interesting. So I think that's a testament to kind of how things have moved on since the uh, the earlier days of amp sims and that kind of stuff in regards to how they work for me in a mix i still like i still love real amps but i'm not averse to layering with a digital amp as well if i feel that a um, a particular sound that's been captured needs something else to kind of thicken it up or it's just it's lacking a bit of something in the guitar tone then i'll sometimes uh, I'll, I'll always take a clean di signal straight from the instrument so that i can use that for either reamping through another real amp or using a software amp to enhance what's already there from what's been recorded. It's rare that I'd use an amp sim by itself, I guess, unless it was a case of somebody bringing in something like a Kemper, but never say never anymore. So what do you feel that the real amps, what's the edge that they still have over something like the Helix or the Kemper or the new quad core thing? I just think that even if you're not driving it particularly hard, I think having a valve power section still adds something to it. It's something about like the harmonics that it generates and the imperfections of it. That's something that they've gotten very close to recreating, but at times it's still not quite there. I think um, emulated speakers as well, impulses, that kind of thing. They're a very useful tool. But no, I, th I think there's something that's slightly lost in the uh, in the process of utilizing that speaker impulse with the uh, the placement of a microphone or the choice of a microphone that somebody's already kind of selected for you, as opposed to kind of capturing the air in the room yourself with a real microphone. I think that does genuinely add something. It's very hard to put your finger on what but it is there. Do you think it's uh, more to do with the feeling of playing or let's assume that you have one signal that's recorded in the room with a nice mic and a nice cabinet and nice amp and then another one that kind of recreates the same thing but using something like a Helix. Uh, do you think that the, the second one, the Helix one, isn't uh, able to create kind of super pro results in the mix? I think you could get super pro results out of either. I think that, like you say, in respect of the feel of it, I guess that's going to come down to the player. I mean, I'm not as familiar with the Helix, but I guess with anything digital, there's going to be a little bit of kind of maybe latency there between you playing something and you hearing something back. I mean, it's we're talking probably incredibly small amounts these days, but I'm sure there's there's got to be some kind of delay there with regards to you know the processing involved. Maybe not enough to be perceptible to the human ear, but maybe to you know the the person playing it you know in, in respect of how it responds to their hands and their their feel with some players who are a little more sensitive to that kind of thing it might they might get a more realistic representation of how they would play through the real amp compared to through the helix 
I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm speculating on that front, really, to be honest. And we're probably talking ever decreasing differences between the two as time goes on. Because, you know, as like I said earlier, I think things have moved on at such a rapid pace that that's probably barely even an issue to most people anymore. Mm. And on this issue of uh, stuff moving on, uh, do you feel that the makeup of the bands that you get or even the sheer number of them has changed over the past 10, 5 years? People being less interested to record in a proper studio if they can recreate stuff at home, let's say with Superior Drummer 3 instead of just getting a drummer in the studio and multi-miking a kit? I think that... It's important to embrace that side of how the industry is gone. It's, I mean, yes, there is that idea that people can do stuff themselves from home now. You know, they can use Superior Drummer or Stephen Slate drums or whatever they want to use to get great sounding results on that front. They can use amp sims plugged into their laptop and get the results they want out of that. There's still plenty of people out there that do want to record in a real studio for the experience of being in a studio and the excitement that inherently goes along with that. I think it just kind of puts you in a different headspace being in that sort of environment uh, creatively. For some people, it can be negative because it can be nerve-wracking to be in that sort of space. And those kind of people, they might feel more comfortable tracking things at home, but that's still it still leaves us with an important role as you know mix engineers for people who don't necessarily have the skills or the time or the commitment to do that kind of stuff themselves you know they're, they're more than happy to pay somebody like me to do it for them or you know kind of farm out to uh, whoever else they want to collaborate with the internet's made that easier than ever you know i have clients from all around the country who can send things to me for for mixing you know even if i've had nothing to do with the recording side of it Prior to that, it's only a case of, you know, getting on Dropbox or WeTransfer, something like that, uploading the files and boom, you know, job done. But yeah, I still think that there's um, there's still a place for getting a drummer in a great sounding room and getting those organic takes, you know, and getting that uh, that real representation of their, their playing rather than uh, just kind of programming it in. Or even on an electric kit, even with a high quality electric kit, every drummer that I've spoken to on the subject, they all they all still now agree that it's not quite the same and it doesn't feel quite the same recording on an electric kit in respect of, you know, the nuances of their playing, what they get in return as an end result compared to being sat behind a real kit in a great room and doing it in that way. I mean, I guess uh, a lot of a lot of more contemporary music is less band driven in the same way as it was maybe 10 or 15 years ago you know a lot less reliance on live instruments um a lot of it is more sample based so there is that to consider too i suppose but even so i think there's still uh, there's still a need for studios i think and there's still enough of an audience enough musicians who want to actually play in you know play an instrument in the in the more traditional sense and you know hear themselves recorded and in terms of literal bookings, do you feel that stuff has changed in the in the past five years or so, or have the numbers been pretty much consistent? On every level of this career, I think there's always an element of inconsistency to the bookings. It can be a little bit feast or famine at times. You know, you'll have a great couple of months, you know, where you, you barely have time to uh, to take a breath, but you'll also have a couple of months where you're wondering where 
you know, whether the phone's ever going to ring again, that kind of deal. It's always been a little bit swings and roundabouts in that sense. Overall, I don't think that's really... I don't think it's declined at all. I guess maybe the nature of the bookings that come through has altered, going back to what we were just saying about, you know, more people uh, working on stuff themselves and then perhaps bringing it in to, to work on further, whether it's um, they, they want a decent sounding space just for tracking their vocals or maybe they... Um, they, they want to flesh out a recording that they've already started the bare bones of by getting some live drums on there, or maybe they just want it mixed. So in respect of the number of bookings, not really declined, but the, the nature of those bookings, yeah, I'd say perhaps that has altered somewhat. If you think about the number of gigs that you have where you record the band and also mix it versus people just sending you files, how what's the ratio there? I'd say, I mean, given all the stuff that we've had go on the last year or so, the, the COVID stuff, it's been more heavily weighted towards the mixed jobs, people working remotely or just self-producing things and then hiring me to mix for them. You know, the last year or so has kind of required that that be the case. But I've still had a few sessions, you know, like professional sessions where people are working, you know, that they are recording commercial products that's will be going out for sale and therefore you know they they are doing work that can't be done from home by coming to a studio and recording i've been very lucky in respect of that that i've been able to uh, to have people come into the studio and still record with me in that traditional sense prior to that i guess it's probably been more on the full band thing it's only really i think since covid that i've i've i suppose stepped up the mixing side of things because well it's been out of necessity you know, for that. Which part of it do you enjoy more, recording or mixing? Ah, don't make me choose, man. <laughs> <laughs> I like to get creative in the studio. Like, I like to think outside the box a little bit in respect of things that we do to capture interesting sounds from time to time when the project calls for it. I had a band in a few months ago, a duo called Frankensteiner. They were like a drums and bass duo, kind of in the vein of like Royal Blood, that kind of stuff. But with I guess uh, a little bit more of a like Queens of the Stone Age kind of vibe about them musically. And they also had some big, dirty mono synth sounds going on in there as well, which was quite cool. But they were pretty much up for anything in respect of just kind of trying some interesting things to sort of throw into the mix to fill the space. So at one point, we ended up recording the stairs in our building. We've got like a metal staircase because our, the control room that I use in the studio is kind of up at the top of these stairs. And then you go downstairs to the live rooms. Uh, so yeah, this metal staircase, we were just kind of back and forth up and down these stairs. And at one point, it was just like, oh, wouldn't, wouldn't it sound cool if we recorded these? So I was like, right, yep, okay, let's do it. Let's get a mic on there. So we had the drummer literally sat on the stairs with his sticks, just kind of scraping and tapping the stairs and using that as a percussive track in the mix. And it just had like this really kind of industrial, metallic, sort of clanky kind of vibe to it, which was cool. There's uh, another project that I did a couple of years ago as well. Uh, I mentioned earlier about how I've got windows to the outside world in my control room now, which is lovely. Um, so I can actually see daylight. What wasn't quite so lovely was one day when we had a skip outside and one of the units kind of next door to the studio. They were emptying out this old double glazing showroom and chucking huge panes of glass into this skip and smashing them. So that was all I could hear. It was in the middle of summer as well. So I kind of had to have the window open to let some air through. And I was trying to concentrate on what we were recording at the time. And I could just hear these panes of glass smashing every so often. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make the most of this. I'm going to hang a microphone out the window and capture that shit. So that was what we did. And we ended up using 
using it as a sample and layering it with the snare track and certain points and just having like this smashing glass effect in the background and it was interesting it was yeah it worked out pretty cool in the end little things like that i think really make a recording interesting and make it memorable for me and for the clients as well hopefully yeah i mean they've, they've been back since so it obviously didn't put them off <laughs> <laughs> and on that note what's your thoughts on replacing stuff like snares and kicks it's um it's a necessary tool i think both in respect of um stylistically for a lot of modern styles of production and i think practically for certain styles of music as well i love the sound of organic drums don't get me wrong and like first and foremost if i'm if I'm trying to capture the sound of real drums and a real drummer, then I do everything that I can to keep the kit organic in that sense and use the real sounds and the real performances that I have. I'm very much into that. I'm very much into, you know, rather than uh, treating stuff with too much editing of a performance, I would rather get it as a take, even if it's not quote unquote perfect. You know, I think just having that human element in there is really important to me if a take's not good enough then rather than kind of editing and moving stuff around then no get back in the room do it again do it better but i think in respect of the end result and the sounds like if, if i can keep a drum kit let's say 100 percent organic then that's win-win for me if it's like 85 percent organic 15 percent sample enhanced that's fine too it's it's one of those things that sometimes has to be done certain players i hate to say it aren't necessarily the most consistent with their hits behind the drum kit so sometimes they need a little bit of help from the consistency that you can get from samples sometimes it's a case of just you know like a, a style thing you know for for the type of music certain things that you want to do in the mix to the drum kit you know a lot of genres particularly a lot of heavier genres have a really bright snare sound that it's it, it can be difficult if you've got a drummer who loves having his hi-hats too close to the snare drum and won't move them away no matter how much you tell him uh when you've kind of got that spill coming into the back of your snare drum mic but you still want to be able to crank some top end in there sometimes you might have to resort to samples to be able to do that successfully but you know that's uh that's part of it and at the end of the day, a wise man once said to me that nobody goes to a puppet show to watch the strings, meaning that it doesn't really matter how you get to the end result, ultimately, as long as you get to the end result. And on that note, at the end of these, I do a uh, sort of quick fire round and uh, we're not at the end yet, but I think one of the questions I had planned is relevant to this discussion. So what's the worst thing to ever have happened to music, beat detective or, or auto-tune? Auto-tune. Auto-tune as an effect is just kind of done for me now. I, it just, it, it dates things or I think it certainly will date things in a few years to come. I think the human voice is one of those things that for my tastes personally, anything that kind of moves too far from the humanity of it in that sense, I think really, it, it, it's a taste thing. It's, it's just not for me, man. Like audible auto-tune ever since, you know, I heard it on that share track in the 90s. I didn't like it then. I don't particularly like it any better now. But what what about other kind of corrective software or even auto-tune used sparingly like Melodyne or anything that corrects pitch? I would still prefer not to use it if I can avoid it, but I would, I would reluctantly use it in the case of we're 99% there but the singer's voice is getting a bit tired. If we don't bring in a little bit of auto-tune, then we're not going to get the job done today. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. There are, you know, the, the human voice more than anything else, I think physical limitations 
can kind of come into play a little bit if it's a really difficult part and the singer's perhaps not necessarily the most efficiently trained in the use of their voice, maybe. Or maybe if they just had a really long day of singing lots of stuff and you need to get the job done one way or another. For preference, I'd like to say to them, maybe we should come back and do this on a different day. Sometimes that's not necessarily an option, depending on the circumstances of the client that you're working with. So in those cases, yeah, you might have to uh, throw your morals to the wind and employ a little bit of Melodyne or a little bit of Auto-Tune. I think of the two, I would prefer probably to use Melodyne rather than the Antares Auto-Tune, just because I think it sounds a bit more natural as an end result. It's not quite as audible. It doesn't have that kind of processed sheen to it to quite the same degree. But yeah, for, for preference, I'd rather not use either, really. I think a lot of the genres that I like to gravitate towards, I, I tend to work with kind of, I suppose, bands that have a bit of a punkier kind of edge to them and a little bit raw and unpolished. It kind of goes against that vibe to me in respect of what's best for the music. You know, even if, a lot of cases, even if the vocals are a little bit less than perfect and a bit rough around the edges, I think that adds to the charm of it. Mm. Let's go through the uh, some of the main elements in a, in a recording and maybe if you are um, kind enough to our listeners, give one tip on how to approach recording or mixing that element. So let's start with the drums. What do you think is a key thing when someone records and mixes drums? Check your phase. Make sure that your mics are in phase. Make sure that your placement is good so that things are in phase. It really makes a big difference. You can do things after the fact to help with that, with, you know, realigning between different audio tracks and things like that. And yeah, fair enough. But I think in respect of aligning things to each other too closely, I think it can it can be detrimental sometimes to the size and scale of the drums if you've got to like kind of every every track landing at the same time perfectly in phase um in respect of you know their place in time rather than in space to kind of expand on that a little bit let's say like pe people who time align their overheads to the snare drum that kind of thing i think they, they need to be in phase but still kind of have that time difference you know they're the snare is going to reach the overhead slightly later than it's going to reach the close mic on the snare. And I think you sacrifice a lot of perceived size and weight in the snare by kind of bringing stuff back to be exactly in time. So that would be my uh, my main thing, I think. There's there's so many things there that I could have said, really, when it comes to drums. But that was the first one that sprang to mind. So that was the one that I went with. What about bass? I guess use of, use of drive on a bass, even when you think the bass should be clean sounding i think in respect of its presence in a mix having a bit of dirt in there even if it's just subtle that really kind of helps with a bass track to make it more audible and give it its own space in a mix just um, having that bit of extra harmonic content clean basses just tend to kind of sink into the background a little bit sometimes that's fine but if you want the bass to be heard as well as felt then consider using a bit of dirt. And do you usually apply that going in or after the, uh, the recording is done? Similar to with guitars, really. I tend to take a clean DI and I'll take a an amp signal, which has probably got liberal amounts of dirt on it in most cases for me because that's my taste. But even on more subtle bass tones, um, I still kind of probably have a little bit of lift there from some drive just to kind of add some excitement to it. And I can always alter the blend with the clean DI then further down the track if needs be. It's useful to have both. In fact, let me change my answer. I think having a clean DI as well as an amp, I think that's really important on bass. 
And uh, what about guitars? Is that your answer for guitars as well? I mean, all of the above applies. Check your phase if you're using more than one mic and make sure that you have that clean DI there as a backup or to enhance with an extra amp track later on, kind of going back onto things that we've already been talking about. New strings, I think, as well, and check your intonation as a guitarist. I think that's really important and it's really overlooked by a lot of players, you know, that particularly guitarists who drop tune or use lower tunings. If you're lucky, they'll have been given the advice as far as, oh yeah, you need thicker strings for lower tunings. So they'll probably go that far, but then they won't check the intonation of those strings until they get to the session and then wonder why the guitar sounds out of tune as they go up the neck. So I sometimes will end up uh, spending half an hour to an hour kind of setting up people's guitars for them because they've they, they've not had the intonation set properly when they've come in after changing strings. What about synths? Synths are so context dependent on, you know, the nature of what you're working on. I don't really have any hard and fast rules when it comes to synths at all, I wouldn't say. It's, yeah, it's, it's so variable from one thing to the next. Synth, synths are a really interesting one, actually. It's rare that I will kind of have a synth or like a keyboard of any sort, like through an amp that I'll mic up in a room. Although I would like to try it, I wouldn't be averse to it. But it's it's mainly kind of recorded direct, and it's whatever the sound kind of from the direct signal happens to be for that project at the time. You know, it's the world's your oyster with synths, man. You you couldn't you could talk all day about that, I guess. And finally, vocals. Again, it's such an individual thing when it comes to the project. I tend to try and keep things as clean as possible, I guess, on the way in so that I can mess them up later, whether that be with, you know, adding distortion or compression effects and things like that. A little bit of compression doesn't hurt on the way in. I think if you've got a really nice signal chain and you've got something like... Uh, you know, with a bit of mojo, like an 1176 or an LA-2A or something like that at your disposal, then you know, you'd probably want to capture a little bit of that on the way in just to give the vocals some vibe. When it comes to tracking vocals, I guess, as like for the vocalist, I'd probably say try and resist the urge to have a ton of reverb on there in your monitors whilst you're recording, because I think... Although it might feel a bit more comfortable, I think it can sometimes deafen you to issues within the take, whether that's with pitch or with tone. Um, it can kind of cover a multitude of sins, which, you know, leave that for the mix, I think. Try and get the takes as, as best you can in their rawest possible form on the way in. A lot of sing singers are probably going to hate me for saying that, but, you know, I think that's uh, that, that really can make a difference in respect of the quality of the results that you get. And now let's get to the quick fire round. So we have two questions left. So these don't need any explanation unless you actually have some thoughts on it. But question number one, mix without EQ or mix without compression? Mix without EQ. And last one, would you rather win a Grammy or get a platinum record? Ooh, platinum record. So uh, why wouldn't you want a Grammy? I mean, I guess I don't really care that much about awards. I, it's not why I do it. It would be nice to have the recognition of, you know, enough people hearing or buying a record that you produced, you know, and ha having that out in the world, you know, that's that that kind of interests me more, I guess, than uh, winning a Grammy or the such award, really, because I, I get more pleasure just from the, the process of creating and the, the recognition of, you know, pe people as an audience, you know, the people that are listening to and enjoying what's being created rather than, uh, you know, an, an award in that sense. I think that that's that's more rewarding to me. Well, Dan, it's been awesome to talk to you, especially after all these years. Yeah, it's it's been a hot minute. <laughs>
where can people find your work? Uh, where can they book you for mixing jobs, recording jobs when the whole COVID thing will die out? Main place, I suppose, is my website. You can find me at danwilletaudio.com. I'm also on Instagram at danwilletaudio. Likewise on Facebook. That's pretty much where to find me. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for joining today. It's a bit of an interesting one because it is called the London Music Podcast. But again, COVID kind of destroyed everything. So I, I had to expand a bit. So Birmingham isn't that far away from London. So I guess it, it, it doesn't count. It's, it's only a train ride away, man. Hopefully when this all uh, this old pandemic dies out, we will do something uh, similar in person yeah man good to talk to you it's been a while like you say and it's uh, it's been nice to catch you up thanks for having me <laughs>